It's good to gather together. It's good to worship together, to be reminded. I know we have mixed feelings in the congregation about singing Christmas songs for a month, but it is great truth and it is great reminder to be reminded of why Christ came, what he came to do. That's exactly what we're going to talk about in our message this morning. This morning is the first in a two-part Advent series, this week and next week. And what I want to do is answer the question, why did Jesus need to come? If I were to ask us, or take you and ask you, what do we celebrate at Christmas? The majority of the answers would be something like, well, it's the time we celebrate Jesus coming to earth, or some variation of that, perhaps. That's right. And then if I were to follow that up and say, okay, well, why did Jesus need to come? What would you say? Well, there's a whole bunch of right answers. It's not just one or two things. There are many things we could say. Jesus came to free us from sin. He came to reveal the Father to us, to show God's grace and his mercy. There's many reasons why Jesus came. So over the next two weeks, as I answer these questions, I don't mean to say that these are exhaustive reasons. That is, these are the only two things that we should say, well, this is why Jesus came. But if you were to force me to prioritize these, and put these in some kind of list, I would put the things we're going to talk about this week and next week at the top of that list for why Jesus needed to come. So my first answer to the question and what we're going to talk about today, why did Jesus need to come, is this. We're going to build on this as we go through, but here it is. Jesus needed to come to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's law and to accomplish what you and I could not accomplish. We're going to look at three different texts this morning, two from Galatians that are going to show us this problem that exists because of our sinfulness, then we're going to look at a text in Romans that is going to give us the solution and what God has done in answer to this problem. So I'd invite you to pray with me and we'll begin for the morning. Father in heaven, it is with joy that we come before you today. And what a joy to be in your house together. What a wonderful reminder that you have not just saved us as individual believers, which we are your children, but you have saved us into a body, into the church where we come together and we worship and we fellowship and we are reminded of your grace and your goodness and we are challenged to think. And I thank you for this church. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And as we are celebrating now the reminders and the times that Jesus came to earth, Father, I pray that we would not be influenced by the world and what the world considers to be the reason for celebration, but would we always turn our focus back to you and why you sent your Son. Remind us of that this morning, Lord. Would you expose in us the areas that need transformation And would you encourage our growth in Christ-likeness? So come, and by your Spirit, do the work that only you can do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, before we read these texts, I want to take a moment and define three of the terms that we're going to see in our passages today. I don't want to assume that when the Bible uses language or when I use language from the pulpit, everybody knows what's going on. And we're going to work on these definitions as we go through, but I wanted to give just three 
definitions for three terms. That would be justification, righteousness, and the law. These are things that we're going to see. And so these are on the back of your bulletin. You can read along or just listen. So the first term is justification. Justification is God's act of pardoning sinners and declaring them innocent before him by the merit of Jesus Christ alone. So when God justifies a sinner, what he is doing is taking the record of wrongs, all of the sin that you have committed or will commit, and he lays it on Jesus, who paid for it at the cross. And because of Christ's sacrifice, paying for your sin, you are justified by God if you accept the forgiveness of your sins by faith. To be justified is to be forgiven of sin and eternally secure. Next term, righteous or righteousness. To be righteous means that we have all of Christ's obedience credited to our account and God sees his perfect law keeping as ours. Where justification removes sin and guilt, righteousness is the application of the perfect obedience of another, namely Jesus Christ, to us by faith. And I mean, I could talk about that for hours. It is so good. So I hope you don't have plans because we're going to stay late today and talk about this. Third term we need to look at is law. We're going to see this a lot today. Law is a broad term referring to God's revealed will for his people concerning their living, morals, standards, and conduct. You could throw worship in there too. Often referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the law of God is the expression of his will enforced by his power. So when Paul uses the term law now in our text, he doesn't mean the speed limit for your chariot. What he means is what God has revealed to us through his word and what God requires of us. So with those things in mind, let's look at our first two passages for the morning. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. This is immediately to the left of Ephesians where we have been for some time. So it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So turn to Galatians chapter 2. And the passages that we're going to read now in Galatians describe for us a really serious problem for the person who wants to be clean and justified before God. So listen for this. See if you can identify the problem as we read these two texts. Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 15 and 16. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now drop down the page just a few verses or turn to chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 10. Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. And I would also include in here Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can you see the problem yet? There's a standard that God has revealed in his law. And all of mankind, from the greatest to the least, have been born into sin. All of us. Every one of us. Because of Adam and Eve's sin and our connection to them, everyone is not only sinful because of what we do, but sinful because of who we are. Don't get the impression when we talk about sin that if you could just stay away from enough bad stuff, you'd be okay. It's not only the actions that we do that make us sinful. It is the indwelling sin because of our corrupted nature. And this is a huge problem. There are no human beings who naturally in themselves do good or pursue God. There are no human beings who have ever in their natural self desired to love and honor and glorify God, which is a massive problem because God, above all, desires to be loved and honored and glorified in his people. And yet because of sin, we are unable to do this. And when your conscience pricks you, when you do something and you feel guilty for what you say or think, our default response to that is to do something, to make up for it. We are wired to work, right? You, you, you get into this habit of, oh, I messed up. I better do something to make it right. And sometimes that's okay, but not as it concerns salvation, not as it concerns being justified before God. Therefore, when we hear of God's law, of his standard, of what he desires and requires of his people, sometimes we have the tendency to say, oh, cool. So if I just do the right things, I'll be good with God. Is that true? No. You cannot earn God's favor by what you do or do not do. The Bible is really clear with this. And can you see the problem? It's the same problem Paul's getting at here in Galatians chapter 2 and 3. He says very clearly, 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the law of God was never designed to be this ladder that we can climb to gain approval or access to God. God didn't give the law so that you and I or Israel or whoever would read it and go, okay, if I just do that and do that and don't do that, God will accept me. The law was given to reveal the standard that God requires of his people and to expose sin. Paul talks about this, where he says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet unless the law had told me do not covet. So the purpose of the law is not to be a ladder that we climb. <coughs> Excuse me. It is to expose sin and to reveal to us God's righteous standard. But 
in our sinfulness, we look at the law and we turn it into this, this system. We turn it into, okay, I can, I can do this. I can handle this. I can just do the right things. I can work my way into it. And so many of the world's religious systems are based on this works system where all you have to do to be right with God is to stay away from the bad and do the good. Work a little harder. Be a little bit better. And what a hopeless system that is because we are sinful. And we are not inclined in our natural selves to do the right thing. Paul puts this thought of works of the law to bed right here in Galatians. He says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. We cannot work hard enough to please God. We cannot be good enough to please God. And it is not as if you just have to be better than the next person to earn God's favor. This isn't like the joke with the two guys running from the bear and they say, you don't have to be faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than the other guy. This isn't that. The standard for God's law is not just be better than someone else. The standard for God's law is 100% perfect obedience. Let that crush you because you know we can't do it. This is the problem that we're seeing in the scriptures. Notice that Paul shifts, and this is the trouble with dropping into a text like this, which is why we normally work our way through, but Paul is switching language. He says, this is Galatians 2, he starts in verse 15 by saying, we are Jews by birth. We know the law. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. And then he changes at the end of the verse and says that no one, no flesh will be justified before God. And what he is doing is communicating that even the Jewish people, because this is his context who he's writing to, is people who are trying to add to faith and say, well, yeah, you have faith in Jesus, but you also need to do these things to be right with God. And he says, look, we're Jewish people by birth. We know the law. The law was given to Israel. And even them, with their familiarity of the law and their attempt at law keeping, knew that a person could not be justified by works of the law. You know why? Because the Jewish people have the same problem that you and I do, indwelling sin. Jewish people do not get a pass on sin. Gentile people do not get a pass on sin. No matter what we do, we cannot ignore or overlook the fact that every one of us is sinful and is in just condemnation before God unless something happens. This is the problem that we're seeing. Now look down the page in your Bible to Galatians 3 again and look at verse 10. Paul says that all who rely on the law are under a curse. Rely on the law for what? What is this reliance? Well, if we keep reading, we see that he means that they rely on the law for justification and righteousness. For a right standing before God. Those who rely on the law for those things are under a curse. They stand under this curse because of their failure to keep all parts of the law. This is why Paul quotes here from Deuteronomy 27. Maybe it's in quotation marks in your Bible, but this is where the quote is from. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law to do them. This is not 50% obedience. 
God does not look at us and say, okay, here's my standard. Now, if you can just accomplish 50 to 60%, you'll be fine. I'll make up the difference. That's not the standard, brothers and sisters. The standard is perfect obedience. James chapter 2, verse 10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has what? Has become guilty of the whole thing. Perfection is God's standard. Now in verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul further draws the contrast between trying to be justified by the law and being justified by faith. Look at chapter 3, verse 11 of Galatians. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law because, and here he quotes, the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, another quotation, the one who does them will live by them. See the contrast there? The righteous live or are justified by faith, which happens by trusting Jesus Christ to perform the righteousness that we could not do, and we accept salvation by grace through faith, that righteousness, that right standing with God, is imputed, given to us. Conversely, the law says it's not the one who believes, but the one who does. Whoever does them, this is works. The one who keeps all the law shall live by the law. Now, faith and works are common contrasts in the Bible when it talks about how a person is saved, how our sins are forgiven. And the overwhelming evidence is that works cannot save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ can save you. If you want to see a very full and complete treatment of this, read the book of Galatians and read Romans 3 to 7. And you will see Paul deal with sin and the law and the relationship to the believer. So let's sum up the problem before we turn to Christmas and to the good news. The problem is that God has revealed his will to his people, standard, this is what I expect. And because of our sin, no one is able to completely and perfectly obey the law. Therefore, we stand guilty of law-breaking before a holy and just God. Now, in light of that, how would we answer the question, why did Jesus need to come? See how important this is? This has to do with our inability and Christ's ability. This is the best news that we could hear. So here's my answer. We, we started with a simple definition. Let's put a little bit more on it. Why did Jesus need to come? He needed to come in order to perfectly obey the law of God in our place and to satisfy the righteous requirement of the law and perform a righteousness that would then be imputed, that just means given to his people. Now to give you the good news, don't take my word for it. The Bible talks about this, and we could have gone several places, and I debated about where to go here to give you the good news. We could have kept reading in Galatians 3, and Paul would say, Christ became a curse for us. Or we could have gone to Galatians 4, where Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, 
born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. Those would have been great texts, but that's not where we're going to go. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter, anyone want to fill in the blank? Chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the greatest chapter in all the Bible. And listen as I read verses 1 through 4. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And listen for Paul's answer to the problem. We know the problem, that you and I are unable to keep God's law. So listen to what God did. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son, there's Christmas, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is so good. That is so good. Our inability to keep the law comes from our sin. There's no deficiency in the law of God. Paul calls the law good and right. But what happens is when we get our grimy little sinful hands on the law, we weaken it because of our inability to keep it perfectly. Notice that Paul doesn't say the law was at fault He doesn't say the problem is the law. The problem lies with you and I and every other person who has ever walked the earth. This is the problem that must be dealt with. So what does that mean? That the law was weakened by the flesh. That's just what we've been saying. It means that when you and I approach the law to try to obey its commands in a way that we can earn favor with God, it's weakened. The law was never intended to be the instrument to deal finally with sin. Rather, it functions to expose sin, to reveal to us just how far from God's standard we really are. Don't turn it on its head and make it a list of requirements that you can earn God's favor. You can't because there's one big problem that needs to be dealt with first and that is our sin. The law could never completely deal with sin. All it can do is expose it. And then we come to this sweetest of all verses. Verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What did he do? He condemned sin in the flesh. When Paul says that God condemned sin, that word means to pronounce a sentence on. It was as if sin is in the court of God and he decisively pronounces judgment on it in the sacrifice of his son. He condemned sin. God did what the law could not do. The law points out sin. It exposes the requirement, the standard, but it doesn't enable us 
to obey. It doesn't give us what we need. Only Christ can do that for us. And that is what God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That just means as a human. And Jesus obeys the law where you and I failed. There is no greater news that we could hear. Jesus had to come to fulfill the law on behalf of his people. And as he did, he fulfills what Paul here calls the righteous requirement of the law. What is the righteous requirement of the law? Perfect obedience. We mentioned this just a little bit ago. Perfect obedience is what Christ accomplished. And isn't this what we should be celebrating now? People ask you, why do you celebrate Christmas? What are you going to say? What are you, someone's going to ask you this week. I'm going I'm to call and ask you just to see if you're paying attention this morning. Why did Jesus need to come? Big answer, ultimate answer, because we are unable to keep the law, which God absolutely requires that we do. And there is this huge separation between our inability and God's standard. And Christ comes. God sent his son and condemned sin in his flesh. And in so doing, Christ earns a righteousness for you and I that is transferred to our account. So that when God looks at us, he no longer sees sin, but he sees the obedience of Jesus Christ imputed to us. At the moment of saving faith. Come on, that's good news. That is good news for Christmas and it is good news for you because you and I are sinful. And completely without hope apart from the saving work of Christ. This is the good news of Christmas. Now look at verse 4 of chapter 8 as we come to a close. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now wait a minute. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us? I thought we just saw that we can't fulfill the law. That by works of the law, no one is justified. So what's going on? Is Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth? I don't think so. I think what he's talking about, what he's referring to, is the magnificent reality that we would call being united to Christ. See this verbiage in the first verse? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are en Christos Iesus, in Christ Jesus. That is the reality of being united to Christ by faith. And I've said this before, that when we are united to Christ by faith, what happens to Jesus happens to us. So that when Christ comes, God sends him in the likeness of human form. He comes as a man. And don't you think it's interesting that God did not just say, Jesus is going to come and pay the price for sin and I'm going to send him on Good Friday. He's going to die to pay the price. Why did he come as a baby and live a life? Because not only did Jesus Christ come to pay the price for sin, to die for sin, he came to live for righteousness. You see, if all we had was justification, the sin is taken care of, but there is no righteousness before God. And Christ 
We call this double imputation, where our sin is transferred to Jesus and His perfect righteousness is transferred to us. And when we are united to Him by faith, when we are in Christ, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us, not by us, but for us through Christ. Does that make sense? Are we getting that? That we, on paper, have fulfilled the requirement of the law, not because you did it, not because you lived the perfect life, but because you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and all of his perfect obedience and righteousness is now credited to your account. And so God looks and he does not just see your sin, he sees his son. And that is what it means to be united to Jesus Christ by faith. This is the biggest reality in the Bible almost. This is so important and it is at the very heart of the gospel and at the heart of Christmas. Why did Jesus need to come? Because we are sinful and we are unable to keep the law of God, which is what he requires. So in his mercy and in his grace, God sends his son born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. This is such good news. So this Christmas, as we gather together, and as you interact with whoever it is you're going to interact with, remember this reality. When people ask you, what are you doing this Christmas? Tell them, I am celebrating the fact that I'm a sinner. And they'll look at you and go, what is wrong with you? But don't stop there. We are sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. Hmm. So good. Now these, these blessings, I want to close by saying this, these blessings of justification, having your sin forgiven, of righteousness, having this right standing before God are only available to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are apart from Christ, if you have never put your faith and trust in Christ, you do not have the righteousness of God, but you stand under condemnation. And if you don't know how that works, how to do that, how do I gain from Christ? How do I get the righteousness of God? Talk to me after the service. Talk to any of the elders. What a wonderful time of year to come into the family of God. We would love to pray with you. But now as we come to the table and celebrate what we've just been talking about, let's pray and ask that the Lord would impress this upon our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, what an unbelievable reality that you in your perfect wisdom would design a plan so perfectly and so perfectly executed that when the time was right, Christ came perfectly living, perfectly dying, satisfying all the requirements that you had in the law. And so that now, by faith, we can participate in his perfect obedience. You are such a great Savior, and I praise you for your wisdom and your plan and for your grace in allowing us to celebrate Christmas. And the world around us has so many other reasons, but would you remind us of the real reason that we are sinful people 
in need of a Savior, and Christmas reminds us that Jesus Christ is that Savior. Lord, if there are those who are apart from you, convict them of your sin, of their sin. Help them to know that they can come clean to you because of the blood of Jesus and experience the perfect righteousness that he purchased. Lord, come and do this work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.